Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward, and with me, as always, my co-host and the creator of the show, Mr. Tom Jokic. Christopher, you called me the day before yesterday, and I don't think I've ever heard you so excited. (laughs) And it was all about this interview, the main interview that we are about to hear, the main event of this week's episode, and it's all about Neil Young. Well, you know, Tom, um, yes, I was excited because I hadn't heard the interview in its entirety for all these many years, and I was just amazed at what revelations came from Mr. Young, as you will hear. Um, but there's a backstory to this. You know how I talked about my Paul McCartney interview in London? Right. And I was so excited because there was a, a full production Paul McCartney show for three people. For myself, my cameraman, uh, Dave Hurlbut, and also for um, McLean's journalist, Nick Jennings, who right. I know you know. Mm-hmm. So the three of us were all very pumped about our day and went off and celebrated and ate Indian food and drank Kingfisher beer. And I got back to the hotel at 2 in the morning, and there was a message from my producer in Toronto, Mike Hayden, saying, call me. I thought, "Uh uh-oh. He says, okay, Christopher, you're not coming home. I went, oh, (laughs) great. I thought I'm staying in London. No, 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 no. You're going to come through Toronto. We're going to give you a fresh camera person. You're going on to L.A. You're going to interview Neil Young for his brand new album. Wow. Which I haven't heard yet. Oh. Yeah. The following day. So this was all compressed into 72 hours time. So they had the, you know, the album waiting for me. I think it was a cassette at the hotel, which I duly listened to, made up my questions and went in and went crazy. And a thing happened, which I hate, and I'm sure this has happened to you. You're in the room. The cameraman's just gotten there. He's got all of his equipment and everything all boxed up. He's about to take it out, and the artist comes in and goes, Okay, I'm ready. Oh, no. And it's that, oh. Because you're forced to talk about stuff, but you don't want to talk about what you want to get into in the course of the interview, right? That's right. I had a trick up my sleeve, it turned out. I I paused for a moment, and I went, Hey, um, didn't you go to Kelvin High School in Winnipeg? (laughs) (laughs) And he, he said... Yeah. I said, yeah, so did I. It was a couple of years after you, but I said, remember that bald math teacher? She's like, yeah, that guy taught my dad. He was terrible. (laughs) Anyway, we went from there and we just spent the whole time talking about Kelvin High School and teachers and all that sort of stuff. And then eventually, you know, Basil, my cameraman, was ready and tape was rolling. And then what followed is this interview. That's excellent. Um, A few seconds ago, you briefly mentioned Nick Jennings. Nicholas Jennings also wrote a book about Gordon Lightfoot, which is excellent. It's called Lightfoot. And I've got an interview with him later in this very same episode. But we got to get started with the main event, Christopher and Neil Young. Go ahead. Well, if you're a fan of Neil Young, you have to hear this interview. Mm -hmm. You won't hear me say that very often. It's an extremely revealing look an obviously legendary artist at a very important point in his life and career. He had just recorded a new album that was about to restore him to the forefront of rock and roll after a very up-and-down 1980s. (laughs) You think back to... um, Oh, records like um, Trans and This Notes for You and that Rockabilly album, Everybody's Rockin'. Well, Neil was in a place where he had to do something new and different. As always, he was 20 years on from his first solo album, Neil Young, followed by Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere, a breakthrough. 
And 10 years on from Rust Never Sleeps, which many people said was kind of like the last great record. Right. But the first single, Rocket in the Free World, and the album Freedom, gave Neil his first Grammy nominations, but most importantly showed him committed to that bare knuckles rock and roll we love him yes, for, right? Yes, for sure. That all those other albums I mentioned had not. So this was one of the most important interviews I ever did for many reasons. And although I loved Neil Young's music and knew his work well, we all know that doesn't guarantee a good interview. <laughs> Neil, bless his heart, was modest, patient, incredibly honest, thoughtful, and funny as hell. Much of this interview has never been heard. Oh, that's great. I can't wait. Well, I asked him, of course, you know me, about writing. <laughs> what would become one of his signature songs, Rockin' in the Free World? It's an interesting combination of these sort of dark vignettes and then a very hopeful kind of wish. Oh, no. Kind of chorus thing, yeah. What, where did that song stem from? I don't know. It's just... Uh... I know I wrote it while I was traveling down the road on my, in my bus, as I've been touring uh, all year, really, off and on. And uh, never, it's all kind of a blur now. Just I got really don't. I got really uh, confused trying to remember when I was on the road and when I was at home and everything. So it must be time to stop for a while. <laughs> but I, I wrote my, I wrote that song out on the road, and I really don't remember except I know I wrote it all on my bus. And I thought of the first line, uh, "Rocking in the free world, keep on rocking in the free world." I thought, I thought of that, and I said, "Well, God, that that really says something." But it's such a cliche. It's such a terrible, you know, like it's such an obvious thing. So then I knew I had to use it. Oh, that's great! So he comes up with this song on the bus, and yeah. he realizes that it's really cliche. But the more cliche it is, the more he likes it, which is so Neil Young. <laughs> being anti-cliche, almost this punk thing. Like, it's so great. Yeah, I, I just love his wry sort of note at the end. It was so cliche I mean, I, I had to use it. <laughs> <laughs> he delved a little bit deeper into the meaning of the song. Freedom to me is more uh, a personal thing. The uh, freedom that, I, that I'm writing about is really a personal thing. It's based on, on, uh, on the stories of people and... Uh, you know, people on the street and homeless people and rich people with problems and all kinds of people, you know. And freedom is just, a, it's an abstract offshoot of all of that. You can't describe freedom. How can you describe it? I tried and I failed, so. <laughs> keep writing. <laughs> yeah, just keep writing about it. Oh, that's funny. How do you describe freedom? Mm -hmm. I tried and I failed. And again... This is an example of his reticence in answering a question, but also his self-deprecating sense of humor. What I loved was that this was somebody being interviewed who didn't have all the answers mm -hmm. and didn't, didn't try to or pretend to. Uh, there were no sort of push-button responses to my questions. It was like having somebody, and this was rare, I found, yeah. really think about what you were asking them before they came up with their answer. Mm -hmm. Um, here he talks about the mix of old and new songs on the Freedom album, and from there uh, just kind of rolls right into talking about his songwriting technique. It's a, it's a very simple but profound lesson. Uh, these are older songs, are they not? No. Ways of Love is a, is a very old song, but Hanging on a Limb is not an old song. Hanging on a Limb is a very recent song. How far back did you reach for uh, Ways of Love? 1975, I think. I have several songs from that period that I didn't get out. 
you know, that are leftovers that oh. never got recorded or whatever, you know. But their time has arrived. Well, that one's time and come. I tried a couple of the other ones, and they they didn't sound right. But that one that one sounded good. Although, if you listen to it, you can tell that it, the difference between a song that I wrote a long time ago and a song that I just wrote in in my interpretation of it. I think I I know I can tell a difference. There's a you try to get a cherry, you know, the first time. That's when you want to get it. And if you can't get it, then you then you you got to wait maybe years and come back and try again because the moment's passed. Is that true for you with writing the songs as well? That you have an idea, and if it doesn't come to fruition right away, you'll put it away for later. Well, I won't push it. If it's not, uh, if it's not happening, I won't push it because uh, there's no, there's nothing to gain by that by trying to make up something cool. If you can't write it down without thinking about it, then uh, then you probably shouldn't be writing it down. That's how I work anyway. That's how I do it. I feel that. Uh, you should never stop until you're finished. You should never edit yourself until you're completely done. So I try to, to write until I think I'm done with the song and then get away from it and come back to it. And then if I'm going to edit it at all, that would be the time. But not, not when it's happening, because when it's happening, if it's really happening, you're not really thinking it up. So then as an editor, you don't really have a right being there. So if, you, if, you, if it's just coming through you, uh, and you're a vehicle for it, then you shouldn't you shouldn't screw with that. You should let it happen until it's all over, and then and then see what you've done and decide what you want to do with it. Christopher, what he just said now was fascinating to me. He said, mm-hmm. "If you can't write it down without thinking about it, then it's not worth writing down." That is Neil Young's technique in a nutshell it has to be so pure like a lot of the times when he was recording with crazy horse he basically just gave them a rough outline of the song and they played not knowing where they were going to be going next in the song and a lot of people criticized the band for not being great musicians but they weren't allowed to be a tight band they only had to follow him and him playing those songs through for the first time sometimes only in one take sometimes was really true to what he just said well i think it shows an artist who has a lot of confidence in their own creative process both the writing process which is obviously mostly a solitary one Mm -hmm. but also the collaborative collective process of working things out with a band and recording and knowing when to hit record and another thing he said about songwriting right there is you should never edit you should never stop what you're doing until you're finished writing everything down and then you can edit then you can make it better well i knew what he meant because there's a tendency, particularly for young writers, to critique themselves all the way through the process. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it just squeezes the life out of the song before it's even, you know, a real thing. Wow. And it was, it, as I say, what he said was really simple but very profound for me. Yeah, I agree. His approach to making records um, was true to form with the album Freedom. But increasingly, it was at odds with record making in the 1980s with the emphasis on technology and the possibilities of the studio. You seem to have taken that approach just to recording as well. I mean, throughout your history, I think there's been times when you've literally gone straight to the studio with an idea like Ohio or Will to Love. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I like to record that way. I like to do things that way, just to try to grab the first one and, and let it go. And, and it's good that I do it like that because so many other people I've got the other way covered. That, you know, there's no way to compete with the, uh, with the artistry of uh, record fabricating that goes on today. There's, it would drive me crazy to do that. I think I would go crazy. 
just trying to do things over and over again to get them right and everything. And, and there's a there's a place for that. I mean, a lot of people like to have everything in order. Yeah, you seem to fight against that a lot of the time. That overprocessing. I'm surrounded by overprocessing, so for me to create more of it doesn't make much sense. What a funny clip. What a backhanded compliment he gives right there. He says that I can't compete with the artistry of record fabricating that's currently going on. That is so <laughs> funny. He goes, a lot of people, yeah. a lot of other people have that covered. That is such a backhanded shot. That could be when rock stars attack right there. But Neil Young being kind of friendly and nice about it when clearly he cannot stand the premeditation that goes on in, in much of uh, the top 40 back then and even now. Well, or even outside the top 40, he probably wasn't listening to too many Steely Dan albums. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and I love both Steely Dan and Neil Young. So there Well, you that's go. the thing. There's, there, fortunately, the musical universe leaves room for all. There'd been a, a lot of talk the year before about Neil's send-up of artists aligning with products uh, in the song, and particularly the video for This Notes For You. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, I sure do. This Notes For yeah. You. We know the point he was trying to make, and it was a, obviously a, a quite a significant one at the time. Um, he, he also talks about how he had been mocked recently in a radio feature called Neil Young's Cat. You know, I have so many opinions about so many different things and everything that it comes out during during my music that I, uh, I it's a battle for me not to... I try not to be preachy about what I'm saying. That's a real danger because as soon as you start preaching, then nobody wants to hear you because you're a jerk, you know. And then you, you, you can get there. And I've slipped into that position many times, and it's just it's a danger of doing what I do. I don't want to do that. I just want to be a reflection of what's going on. I let people draw their own conclusions. You know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not trying to tell anybody what to do. You've been very successful at mixing uh, a message, if you like, with a sense of humor. I mean, this note's for you. It's wonderful. It's funny. It's very funny. It was a lot funnier before people heard it. should have heard it when just a couple of people heard it. We were just rolling around and laughing on the floor. And then when they, they, you know, then it came out and they made this big deal about it and they wouldn't play it and and everybody started talking about it and everything. It got much heavier than what it was. And then it got to be that I was putting down all of these people and everything because I did the video, which the video really does put them down in as much as it makes fun of them. As beer salesmen, you know, anybody's open season, you know, anybody, anybody who makes a commercial or anything, you know, doesn't have to be a musician, but, you know, it's always been that way. People who are hawking things on TV, like selling cars, used cars and everything, you know, you, you can make fun of those people. They're fun to, to make fun of. <laughs> if they just happen to be musicians who are my contemporaries and, uh, and uh, artists who I respect. But as beer salesmen, it's still open season. So, you know, but that was fun. That was fun doing that. And I imagine that, that uh, you, know, you know, I'll get mine somewhere along the line. I know I'm doing something terribly wrong. I just, uh, I know. I just haven't told anybody what but it is so they can make fun of me for it. People make fun of me anyway. I, I've heard a lot of records that make fun of my voice and things like that. It's, it's a trip. Good parodies? Oh, yeah. There's one guy uh, in New York. Who did, they did a record called Neil Young's Cat. And all these songs, you know, all my songs sung by my cat, right? Jeez. So that was pretty funny. So I figure I'm, I really made it when, 
making that happen. All right, that's great. I don't want to be preachy, he <laughs> says. I just want to reflect what's happening. And he's making fun. At yeah. first he says, I don't really want to name names or make fun of anybody specifically. And then he actually does, which I, I always love when that happens. And he also <laughs> said he compared them to used car salesmen. That's great. Okay, Neil Young's cat. I, now, I've never heard this of you no. this bit. But do you know who the New York DJ is that's responsible for it? No. Howard Stern. (laughs) I was going to guess Howard, (laughs) but I didn't know he was around back then. That's great. Well, neither did I, but there you go. He had an interesting approach, which I'd never heard before, of choosing the songs to take out on a tour. Now, of course, every artist who has a catalog like his, and there aren't very many artists who do, feels a certain weight of obligation to trot out the favorites. I mean, for him, it's like, how does he not play Heart of Gold or Mm -hmm. Old Man or Needle in the Damaged... I mean, how do you ignore After the Gold Rush and all of these... Or Cinnamon Girl, all these songs. For the most part, you can't, but he has a way of dealing with it. And he acknowledges that there are certain touchstones in his catalog that can't be ignored. But hear what he does with them. When you go to do a tour and you go back through your catalog of songs, as well as playing the current ones, are there certain old ones that have real resonance for you? Certain ones that I know I I like to do that uh, uh, make me feel good. But then you can wear them out, you know, and do it too much and then it's over. And once you've stepped over the line and you're doing it and it's more like a record of yourself, you're miming yourself, and that's no good. So I try not to do the same ones all the time, although I don't succeed at that. A lot of times I do do the same ones, but they usually are the ones that, that manage at the right part of, part of the show to, to make things uh, interesting, you know make things jump out. Like when I play a solo acoustic show and I'm on stage for an hour and a half, there's certain milestones you have to mark. It gives the people a chance to appreciate something and it really gives me a bit of a rest from from the intensity of the newer songs when I do an old song. When I do a show like the acoustic show that I just did, I really think of the show as five songs, even though I played 16 or 17. I think of the five new songs and how they're set up, how they're arranged, so that they benefit the most, so that the young ones are the ones that get all the attention, and so that they get to, to, to uh, have the benefit of what all the other songs have, to support them and introduce them and come down from them and everything, so that every one of those new songs is, is completely supported by what I've done before. So the whole show is designed around four or five songs, getting those songs to the right place. Okay, so I've seen Neil Young fairly recently, within the last three or four years, and what he said there now makes sense from what I saw just a couple of years ago. He said the whole show is designed around the four or five new songs that he's playing that night. So he knows there's like a handful of songs that he really wants to put forward with the audience that the audience probably hasn't heard. And for the most part, doesn't real, they're not there for those songs. But as an artist, that's what he wants to put forward. And I'm telling you, that he put way more effort into the new songs that he was playing a couple of years ago than he did into the songs that got everybody up and clapping along. And he placed those songs few and far between. And I, I can't remember which big songs he played. Like it might have been Harvest Moon, it might have been Old Man, it might have been um, Tell Me Why. But I know that they were spaced out so far apart that... He couldn't get any momentum going. But for him, he was truly into the new music. And he was, I think, 
18 minutes into the concert that I saw, and he was still on the first song. But who's <laughs> counting? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, it's almost. I think it's almost like programming a new television show. If mm. you have it and you, you want to see, you want to give it a good lead-in, so you set it up by putting it after the hit show. So hopefully you get some carryover. That's right. But yeah. I, I have a funny story. I, I was living in Paris, and I took my then wife to see uh, Neil Young, who she loved. Mm-hmm. And he was doing the Greendale show. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It was a thing that he wrote. It had a storyline and all these characters. And a lot of times Neil will get up there and say next to nothing on stage. But in this case, there was a long narration, a description of each character. And then he'd play the song that went with them. <laughs> well, by the end of the show, she was livid. <laughs> She was so unhappy with, with, well, with Neil and by association with yours truly. <laughs> it was as if I was responsible for the set list. Right. <laughs> he did come back for a very short second half and uh-huh. played a few favorites, but at that point, he had lost her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and she was not, not happy. It took a little while to to bring her around that's, I gotta tell you <laughs> that's very funny and that's typical Neil and that's typical Bob Dylan and sometimes it's typical Van Morrison there are some artists who are just that artists they're not jukeboxes they're not going to replicate the song exactly yeah. like you know them no matter what you want and if you're a true fan you're going to go there with the understanding that you may not hear what you want to hear but you're going to hear what he's putting forward so on to my favorite topic as to how he goes about the practice of songwriting, Neil describes an approach that is similar to other great writers like Paul McCartney in saying that there is no one way to go about it. He uh, elaborates also on how to avoid distraction. It's different every time. Sometimes I don't have an instrument at all. Sometimes I, I just have a piece of paper and I just write the whole thing in my head. Other times I... I just start playing the guitar and uh, get a sound going on an electric guitar and just get hung up there and then a band might be playing with me and I might hear uh, uh, something start coming and then I just write it down and keep on going until it's over. There's so many different ways to write a song. The only rule is that you don't try, you know. You know, I just, uh, if I'm trying to write it, it's not going to be any good. When you, you know, and also there's another rule. There's, a, there's only one rule, but there's another rule. <laughs> the other rule is don't ignore yourself. You know, if you're walking down the street and you're a songwriter and you start hearing a song, don't wait because you'll forget it. It'll never be like it was. There's no, you know, and, and there's no ego involved because it did, you didn't make it up yourself. If you made it up yourself, it's probably not very good anyway. So if you just let it come through you, and then when it comes through you, you don't pick up on it instead of going, wow, that was cool, I'll have to remember that. You know, I, I try to really get into it and do it when it happens. Sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. The older I get, the more responsibilities I have, the more distractions, the more possessions, uh, the more friends, all those things stop me from being spontaneous and grabbing the moment when it comes along. How do you sort of clear the slate of all the distractions in order to get that creative state of mind? Oh, I, <laughs> uh, many different ways, I guess. I, you know, I've been unpredictable to a lot of my friends and uh, not a very good friend. 
can be a good friend for a while and then I'm not there anymore all of a sudden. Uh, people who work for me know that I'm very shaky and I can change just like that and everything and that but that's part of my makeup that's what I do what I you know I can either spend my life trying to be a perfect person and treat everybody with uh, the utmost of diplomacy and take my time and everything or I can spend my, t my, my life trying to write songs and be an artist that, trying to be there to write the songs be available you know so I, I've chosen to try to do that and, you know with the exception of my family who come first so, so I'm, I haven't been a lot of fun for a lot of people to be around for a long time. But I, I have my friends that I've had for years, years and years, but there aren't very many of them. Oh, I love that. He says his songwriting rule is don't ignore yourself. If you hear a song, write it down right away. That's very mm. interesting. And then, uh, and then he talks well, about so true. not being a good friend. He's so self-aware in this. Like you, Honestly, we could have played this one clip and there's so much in it um, about him not being a good friend, about him so devoted to his own craft um, that, that you know, he can spend his life being a perfect person or he can spend his time being an artist. And he, and he says, I haven't been a lot of fun to be around. There's a lot of stuff in that clip right there. And you know, Tom, when he's talking about his techniques, it's almost like he's imagining uh, an invisible audience of young writers trying to sort it out on their own and kind of giving them some guideposts along the way. Mm -hmm. He offers a cautionary tale for writers everywhere in this next clip. You know, the ones I really hate are the ones where I hear it, and for some reason, I don't do it. That bugs me. Because it doesn't come back. You think you're going to get another chance. It's like, uh, it's like what you always hear about people when they die, that, they, that the last thing they think of is, oh my God, I didn't, you know... I need to say this, and the people that, that they were going to say it to are, they're somewhere else and they hear that the guy died and they're going, I wish I'd, I wish I'd just said that, you know. And that's what it's like to miss a song. When it comes by and you don't grab it, it's the same kind of feeling. There you go. Again, you've got to write it down. You can't just, it's like when you find out someone had died and you didn't get to say what you wanted to. That's what he says there. And that's crazy that he uh, equates mm -hmm. songwriting like that. Whatever Neil Young is doing, it's with absolute commitment and full intensity. I think he said once that creating rock and roll, is, it has to be done at a kind of burnout intensity, like a red line level, or it doesn't work. Is that still true for you? R certain kinds of rock and roll, yeah. How do you keep that up? Well, you stay in shape. Don't do it when you're not supposed to do it. Only do it for so long. But then there's, uh, if you don't use it, you lose it. Have you ever heard that, <laughs> that expression? Mm -hmm. It applies to everything. So if you don't keep on doing it, then, you, then you're not going to be able to do it when you want it. So, so I just try to keep on playing and keep on going, which is, uh, you know, rather than lay off for eight or nine years and come back. I can't stop. You know, I have to keep on going. This, uh, and there's so much to do and so little time to do it in. That sounds like a real cliche, doesn't it? <laughs> it's true. Great stuff from Neil Young. And there's more. We're down to what? One oh, more clip? The bone... There's a bonus. Do you hear the bonus bell ringing? Because yes. there's an extra clip here. Okay. I used to use, if you've ever saw my interviews on TV, I used to use three and a half by five inch cards as a way of 
keeping a list of all my questions. And, you know, I, I was pretty good at sort of keeping them low and out of the shot as much as possible. And, you know, it was just there to help me stay on track and not mm-hmm. get too far in the weeds with the interview. Anyway, Neil saw fit to um, note them <laughs> and found them quite amusing, apparently. I wish I had all my answers on a little piece of paper so I could just read off like that. <laughs> Jeez, I'd look, <laughs> I'd look really together, wouldn't I? Uh, a little overprepared, perhaps. <laughs> I cannot imagine him preparing answers in advance for anything, no. anybody. Well, right? that's the joke, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. He was well, in a great frame of mind, wasn't he? Well, you know, he's so likable in this interview. And honestly, mm-hmm. he looked fantastic. Like, I've never seen Neil Young look kind of that healthy and happy. You know, he's aged, of course, over the years, and he's still fantastic. He's still a great artist. But right then, when you interviewed him in 1989, it was like he was at the peak of his powers. I would agree. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic, and we're here to talk about Gordon Lightfoot with the author of his biography, Nicholas Jennings. One of the reasons why you're here, and I know that Christopher's read this book, it's called Lightfoot uh, by Nicholas Jennings, and of course it's about Gordon Lightfoot. I just finished it two days ago. I loved the book. I learned so many things about Gordon that I'd never knew before, and Christopher and I have had this kind of ongoing conversation about Gordon Lightfoot. He considers him one of the great writers of Canadiana of all time, maybe the greatest. And, you you know, there are some people who will say that there's another Gordon, Gordon Downey, who was also a great purveyor of Canadian history and Canadian kind of identity. And I was saying to Christopher, and I'm actually rethinking my position, that Gordon's greatest moments are his most personal ones, like The Circle is Small, just lyrically how those songs are so beautiful and so romantic, and yet it's this kind of burly guy who put these songs together, and it's a, it's both masculine and really, really romantic and very moving. Having finished reading your book, I learned a lot more about his music than I, than I previously knew, and I do kind of come around to Christopher's way of thinking of Gordon as a national treasure and someone who really reflects Canada. Yeah, so I think Gordon Lightfoot, um, he became a national icon. I won't say entirely by accident, but, you know, it did help when the CBC commissioned him to write Canadian Railroad Trilogy. And at the same time, being a small town guy from Aurelia, he was already very connected to the Canadian wilderness. So it was a natural for him to start writing songs about lakes and rivers and plains and boats and trains and, and, and things you know, that uh, he connected with. That ingrained in him um, inspiration for the songs that he became famous for. That's great. And one of those songs, of course, is Canadian Railroad Trilogy. And the other great example of that is, of course, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald and how that song ever became a hit on the radio. It's inconceivable that it would happen in 2018, which to me is a tragedy. The fact that it was a massive hit in both Canada and the United States, and it just goes to that storytelling, that is an amazing fact all by itself, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, and you know, he is truly a craftsman. Mm-hmm. He really is the, a perfectionist when it comes to the melody, the lyrics, and the, the factual content. He's a stickler for accuracy. Yes, that's true, and he's even changed some of the lyrics, including Edmund Fitzgerald, to reflect some of the inaccuracy accuracies that he eventually found out even 20, 30 years after the fact. I love that. I love that about him. Okay, so you're talking about him as a songwriter and how devoted he is. 
at kind of his peak, 1970, he moves into a new house. He doesn't even bring his wife and kids with him. He wrote every day for a month. And in that month, he wrote 35 songs, That's right. including If You Could Read My Mind. That song has been covered more than 300 times. Yeah. That's amazing. So let's think about that song for a second. Many years later, Gordon Lightfoot's in the gym. Working out, not a lot of people know that even at his advanced age, now he still works out on a fairly regular basis. He's at the gym, and he hears Whitney Houston singing uh, The Greatest Love of All, a song written by Michael Masser. And then the line is, um, uh, I remember long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow, right? Sorry, I apologize for my singing. I really bug Christopher when I sing all the time on the show. But... That's that line is very similar to several lines in "If You Could Read My Mind." Yeah, he heard it come over the uh, the stereo system in his health club. It just rang a bell. Sure, it just rang, you know, it sounded yeah. an alarm. But yeah, never thought I could f- act this way, I and mean, I got to say that I just don't get exactly it. Yes, exactly the same right. melodic yes. structure. Mm. So he thought, you know, he thought, well, geez, that's my melody, uh, and he and he thought briefly, Tom, about suing for copyright infringement, and then he. This is kind of very telling about the kind of person Gordon Lightfoot is, is that he realized that Whitney Houston at that time was going through some personal difficulties. And he thought, well, why am I going to put this woman through that? So, I mean, I'll I'll just basically drop the lawsuit. Yes. Um, And, you know, he's surprised people a number of times through his career by doing things like that that are they're not the kind of things a, a major celebrity Massive star or rock would do. star, or, yes, yeah, you know, would do. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, really, he's got a decent streak in him that people admire. That's kind of good guy Gordon. Now let's talk, and I, I, well, I'm not going to call him bad guy Gordon, but I am going to talk about the fact that Gordon had many relationships uh, over the years, three marriages, few affairs, and and many Long, affairs, long-term affairs, yeah, to the point things. where even his daughter didn't want him to sing certain songs anymore. Now, which one was that? Was that for loving me? For loving me. So that's what you get for loving me and she considered it an insult to her mother and that was gordon's first wife he was talking about you know i've I've had a hundred i've had a hundred women you know just like you you know and it was that kind of boasting which was really kind of a posturing that was more commonplace back then and certainly that song you know you can almost hear a parallel with bob dylan's don't think twice it's all right right but she pointed out to him that it was insulting to her mother. So he he said, you know what? You're right. I'm not going to sing that song anymore. So even though it was one of his very earliest hits and a massive hit for a lot of other artists like Marty Robbins, who had a number one with it, all kinds of artists covered For Love and Me. He just dropped it. He dropped it from his repertoire. He won't sing it to this day. So her quote is, the, the daughter's quote is, my dad was going through a lot of women. My mom didn't need to be reminded of that. Exactly. Like, isn't that something? So he stopped singing it. Of yeah. course, that's the game changer for him, though, that song, yeah. when Peter, Paul, and Mary covered it. Yeah. And all of a sudden, people view him not just a performer, and they didn't really know him as a performer at that point. But once you get on board as a songwriter of note, yeah. it changes everything. And he also covered a lot of artists, including Bob Dylan, and his friend Chris Christopherson and I had no idea that Gordon hit the charts with me and Bobby McGee a year before Janis Joplin did. That's right. So Frank Sinatra is looking to kind of upgrade his sound and he decides to do If You Could Read My Mind. Gordon comes to the studio. Is that right? Sinatra was in the studio recording it and Lightfoot told me that he witnessed Sinatra was working his way through the song and he could not get his tongue around all the words. He just found it too 
you know, too much of a mouthful. Um, so at, at one point, Sinatra just kind of had the, the lyric sheets in his hand and he just threw them down. So I can't do this. And, and <laughs> witnessed that and was, I, I'm sure, a little bit, a little bit crushed. Maybe. Yeah. So another story I want you to tell is one of my favorites, of course, is Joni Mitchell. Joni lets Gordon stay at her apartment in Detroit free of charge on one condition. Joni had discovered the Beatles, and Lightfoot had basically been ignoring them. I, I, but he, like, almost intentionally staying away from it or rejecting them just because they were uh, like a, almost a fad, yeah, right? He, okay. he, yeah, he thought they were just a pop phenomenon, okay. and you know, and he was he was a serious folk singer. Joni said to him, "Gordon, you've got to listen to the Beatles. You can stay in my apartment on the condition that you sit and listen to Rubber Soul." And <laughs> It turned him around. He said, thanks to Joni, he discovered the, you know, the talent of Lennon McCartney. Mm-hmm. Two more things. The fact that made me laugh, that blew me away the most, was he was approached to make a very big movie, which is now in theaters once again. Tell that story about what happened in 1976. He was working with an L.A. Um, talent broker um, slash manager. And, you know, I, like a lot of... Uh, pop stars, rock rock artists, he was being groomed for television and for, for movies. In fact, it was thought that Gordon might make, make a very good host of a of a you know a, a TV variety show, sort of like a Glenn Campbell or a Kenny Rogers. Sure. Gordon uh, said, you know, you know what, it, I don't see myself playing that role. He's not mm-hmm. that's not his strength. But they did start getting him parts um, in movies and he did appear in, in one feature film and in one T V movie. And then he was uh, he was up for a role in A Star Is Born. A Star Is Born, and his co-star, co-star would have been would have been Cher. Oh my God! And and in the end, of course, he didn't get the part, but his buddy did. But his buddy Chris Christopherson did with Barbara Streisand. Yeah. That's amazing. And That's you know, it, it's uh, it's just one of those quirky things. I mean, the thing about Lightfoot is that he was there at Newport '65. He witnessed Dylan plugging in and the outrage that followed. Wow. Because of his success, he was moving in um, some pretty heady circles. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Okay, one last thing. A few weeks ago, I'm walking down Young Street by St. Clair Avenue in, uh, in Toronto. And who walking the other way is Gordon Lightfoot. And I look at him, and he doesn't look like he wants to be bothered at all. But it was Gordon Lightfoot. I didn't bother him, but I looked at him, and he just kind of kept his eyes straight. Should I have said hi to him? What kind of reaction would I have gotten? <laughs> well, well, you know what? The amazing thing is, is that he's become very, very open. Yeah. Um, in in the last, I would say, in the last fifteen, twenty years, he's, you know, I think since he he really quit drinking in in the early eighties, and you know, I think he's. He's a, he's a, a very moral guy. So mm-hmm. being a small town man, you know, um, with all the values of loyalty and trust and, and reserve, you know, he's a very modest guy. He's realized that if people want to say hi or want an autograph mm-hmm. or a selfie these days, you know, he's more than happy to oblige. So I think actually, Tom, you would have probably had a polite, you know, <gasps> how do you do um, no. from him. Yeah, no, because he... he <laughs> He is more accessible than people think. Sure. I mean, every concert he does, and he still does up to 70 shows a year, most of them in the U.S., Yeah, he'll do the obligatory after-the-show meet-and-greet, and he'll pose for selfies, That's he'll sign amazing. albums. He'll do that with an endless row of people. I mean, the fans who just, you know, come out to, to see him, he, he's he's happy to oblige. Well, that's great. It was a missed opportunity for me, and if I Next had him time. here, I would get him to sign your book, 
but I'm going to get you to sign your book for me right now. I'd be happy to. Just a closing thought here, and Mm -hmm. just what you said, is that Gordon, for many years, was kind of embarrassed by accolades. Mm -hmm. But now I think he's come to accept those and maybe see that, you know, the accolades are, if not deserved, then at least well-intentioned. People really love him and his music and what he's meant to the Canadian music industry in a way that is kind of unprecedented. Maybe the guess who had that kind of impact too, mm-hmm. south of the 49th parallel, having massive success for Canadians when there was no Canadian content regulations, mm-hmm. waving the flag for this country at a time when very few other artists were able to do that. So a lot of people really appreciate him and love him. And, you know, listen, hes I know he's 80 years old now. I certainly hope he lasts for another 80. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let's appreciate Gordon Lett while we have him. Nicholas Jennings, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. That does it for this episode of Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook at Famous Lost Words and on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh. Executive producer, Rob Farina.